Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website clubchimera.com. At the end of the show, there will be some messages regarding a couple of courses I'm running this year, as well as a special charity fundraiser that is being run through the Oxford School of Martial Arts. This episode is entitled Pinocchio's Valentine and the Handshake Hit, where I discuss situational awareness with an especial focus on the dangers of getting in with the wrong crowd. On with the show! Section 92 of the Rose Hill Cemetery and Mausoleum, Chicago, Illinois, USA, is an unremarkable plot. A flat, oblong headstone bears the title Schwimmer. Underneath, there are two columns for two people, Reinhardt and his mother Josephine. Curiously, Josephine's birth year is recorded, but not the date of her death. This might indicate that she intended to be buried with her son, and this did not happen when she was eventually laid to rest. Reinhard Schwimmer's birth date of 1900 is disputed. His birth certificate apparently has it down as 1899, and yet several historical writers acknowledge both these dates before stating without citation that the correct date was the 1st of December 1898. The vagueness and uncertainty of his birth date is in stark contrast to the day he died, 14th of February 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. For self-protection teachers, This entire bloody episode provides a case study in the dangers of switching off situational awareness. Yet, of all the bullet-riddled corpses that lay strewn on the garage floor, Reinhard Schwimmer delivers the most profound lesson, simply because he had the very least reason to be there in the first place. When we discuss awareness in personal security, we usually imagine immediate pre-incident indications that can be noticed by an individual who is alert and has knowledge or experience of surveying people, places, hazards and changes. Before we get back to the tragedy of Reinhard Schwimmer's ultimate folly, it is worth briefly going over some key points leading up to this day to see how even the most streetwise individuals can be caught off guard. The St Valentine's Day Massacre was the result of a trap set by Al Capone's Chicago outfit to eliminate his main rival George Bugs Moran and as many of Moran's Northside lieutenants as possible. This was the culmination of a turf war that both Capone and Moran had inherited from their previous bosses. Al Capone had been on the receiving end of several assassination attempts, as had his predecessor, Johnny Torrio. Torrio, often considered one of the shrewdest of gangsters of his day, handed over his position to Capone after a failed hit from the Northside gang had left him injured. Bugs Moran's predecessors were another story. The founder and leader of the Northside gang, Dean O'Banion, was a victim of the notorious handshake hit. Using the cover of the recent natural death of the president of the Unione Siciliana, Frankie Yale and his two murder twins, John Scalese and Albert Anselmi, had made routine visits to Case O'Banion's flower shop under the pretense that they were making floral arrangements for the funeral. In reality, they were memorising the shop's layout. Yale was not only a long-time protégé of Capone's old boss Johnny Torrio, as well as an old friend of Capone, he also regularly worked for the Jenner brothers, who were also at war with the Northside gang. At the time, a supposed truce was in place between the Northside gang and their rivals, but that truce had been held by the now-deceased Union president. 
On the morning of the 10th of November, Yale Scalese and Al Salmi entered O'Banion's shop whilst the boss was clipping chrysanthemums. The trio employed the assassin twins' aforementioned handshake hit method. Apparently, the usual practice was for Anne Salmi to extend his hand as a friendly gesture to the intended target. The hand was then held in a vice-like grip to prevent the victim from reaching for his gun. Needs be, the other hand would also be held. Scalese would then shoot from the side. All sources seem to indicate that Yale performed the handshake setup this time, which would have seemed natural given that he was clearly the senior gang member, whilst the murder twins fired shots into Urbanian's chest and throat. Predators look for ways to get past our boundaries, and like the mythological vampire, there is no better way than to be invited in. As far as tactile encroachment is concerned, the handshake hit is perhaps one of the most treacherous. After all, the handshake gesture has long been theorised to be a gesture of peace. Both shakers are demonstrating they bear no weapon. My advice during my self-protection teaching is that you do not owe a handshake or any of your personal space to an individual who is not demonstrating trustworthy qualities. This is why I teach the point that the fence is a concept and not a technique. Once natural warning signals go off in our conscious and subconscious thought patterns, we need to reconsider the changes and potential threats we face. Dino Banyan's defences will have been lowered by the previous friendly visits from these gangsters. The boss was certainly no fool in matters of gangland business, and his death demonstrates how easily humans can slip up when they get complacent with the danger in their midst. After O'Banion's death, truces have been made and routinely broken, often punctuated with assassinations of key figures that were followed up by revenge hits. The St Valentine's Day Massacre was one such revenge hit. Therefore, one would assume that tensions were high and everyone should have been on high alert. Capone's mob was particularly adept at using guile and disguise to set up hits, and they weren't afraid to use their target's business premises, as had been seen with O'Banion's death. By this stage, the Northside gang had lost another two of their bosses, leaving Bugs Moran as the leader. Allegedly, Abe Bernstein, the leader and founder of Detroit's Purple Gang, had called Bugs Moran on the 13th of February with the news that he was bringing in some hijacked log cabin whiskey for a cheap price and would deliver it to the Northside gang's warehouse garage at 2122 North Clark Street the following morning. Moran had not had such a good history with the Purple Gang and should have been suspicious. Bernstein was known to be Capone's main supplier of Canadian liquor. His gang had been in the bootlegging business three years prior to the statewide ban on alcoholic drinks, when Michigan decided to be ahead of the prohibition curve. The Purple Gang had already fought bloody turf wars and had earned a reputation for hiring out hitmen and enforcers. The Milliflorus massacre in 1927 is considered to be their handiwork and has the ignoble record of being the first time a submachine gun was used in a Michigan hit. Therefore, despite Moran clearly beginning to trust the Detroit boss, he should have been sceptical about this type of meeting, where he was expected to appear in person. The group of six who arrived at Moran's garage that morning to take delivery of the whiskey, and the single mechanic John May would not have been concerned when the police car arrived outside and four men entered the warehouse, two dressed in police uniform and the others in plain clothes. Smug assumptions with the corrupt judicial system meant that they could expect to be let out pretty quickly. The liquor hadn't arrived yet, and this bust could be just considered to be nothing more than a setback, an inconvenience if anything else. The ill-fated septet were then told to line up against the wall, expecting to be searched, whereby they were promptly mowed down with Thompson submachine guns and a single shotgun. Capone's plan had not been a complete success. 
Moran, in what turned out to be a huge stroke of luck for him, was late for the meeting and turned away when he saw the police car approach his warehouse. However, the victims had consisted of heavy hitters from the Northside gang. These were Albert Kachelik, who went by several different aliases, and was Moran's brother-in-law, right-hand man and an enforcer. The brothers Peter Goosey Goosenberg and Frank Goosenberg were also regular enforcers. These three had been involved in recent hits and attempted hits on the Chicago outfit. One such audacious attempt involved the gang driving by the hotel where Al Capone was eating and riddling it with machine gun fire. Goosey had even stepped from his car and getting down on one knee opened fire from the front line before getting away. Adam Hare was the Northside gang's bookkeeper. Albert Weinshank, who managed many of the Northside gang's cleaning and dyeing operations, was dressed in the same coloured overcoat and hat as Moran, and many have speculated he was mistaken for the gang boss by one of Capone's lookouts. John May is often considered to be another unfortunate collaborator of the gang, who just worked as a part-time mechanic. However, he had been in and out of jail for most of his life, and had apparently been paid muscle when needed, although it is reported that he was never allowed to carry a gun. This broke the Northside gang, and by the following year, Capone's conviction for tax evasion, which finished him completely, was clearly a result of the massacre and the war that had led up to it. However, for self-protection teachers and students, our special attention falls back upon the man who need not have been there. Reinhard Schwimmer was very much the seventh victim and the closest we have to an innocent bystander caught in the crossfire of mob violence. His story reads like a nightmare parable for those who keep bad company. Falling in with the wrong crowd can be one of the most potent inhibitors of personal security. Schwimmer was born and died in Chicago. His main profession was that of an optometrist, although he had no medical training and he would be considered to be around the level of an optician by today's standards. Nevertheless, with shades of Walter Mitty, he styled himself on his business card and in his advertising as Dr. Reinhardt Schwimmer. Not that it did him much good. Schwimmer's practice was in a sorry state. This was due to the disproportionate amount of time he spent away from it whilst he avidly gambled. However, the gambling was even less profitable. At the time of his death, he had accrued a substantial debt from his hobby. He didn't seem to care much. The time he spent gambling kept him in the company of his idols. Schwimmer's real passion wasn't the care of the human eye or even the thrill of placing bets. It was the gangsters of Prohibition-era Chicago. Looking at the life and death of this man, one cannot help but feel a great deal of sympathy for his poor, grieving mother. Photographs taken from the time show her crying into a handkerchief at the inquest into her son's death the day after the shooting, and in a similar state as she leaves a chapel following his funeral. Josephine seems to have been his main means of support during the various troughs in his undisciplined life. Schwimmer was married and divorced twice. His second marriage only went ahead when he convinced his wife-to-be, a rich widow called Mrs. Reich, that he would cease his gangster groupie lifestyle. Prior to this marriage, Schwimmer had already been forced to move premises due to mounting gambling debts. After his second divorce, Schwimmer was back down the racetrack and back swooning over the Northside gang. Poor Josephine Schwimmer is reminiscent of every tragic parent who watches on as their child's life slowly spirals deeper and deeper into danger. There appears to be a lesson in his story that reminds me of one of the core messages in the most translated Italian book in history, Carlo Collodi's The Adventures of Pinocchio. I've yet to see a truly faithful filmic or dramatic adaptation of Collodi's fairly dark and didn't didactic children's novel of 1883, neither content or spirit. 
Despite its fantastical settings and literary contrivances, this moral story conveys the human condition on harsh yet relatable terms. It works as an allegory that uses a living marionette's journey to becoming a real flesh-and-blood boy as a metaphor to describe a child's path to responsible maturity. It is Joseph Campbell's monomyth and the exemplification of the hero's journey. Due to the flawed nature of the Pinocchio character, his many adventures, or rather misadventures, are generally the result of his many mistakes. The author, a disenchanted and heavily censored satirical and political writer, had a love for fantasy stories, having translated several fairy tales written by Charles Perrault from French to Italian, and decided to write one set in a villa in Tuscany, where he spent his childhood. Incidentally, the place was called Collodi, where he drew his pseudonym. His real name was Lorenzini. At its heart, The Adventures of Pinocchio is a fairy tale, much like the stories its author was emulating, and for good reason, we note that chapter 16 onwards rely a lot on Duke's ex machinas and other impossible devices to snatch the hero from otherwise certain destruction. However, there are few examples of children's fiction that deliver such useful messages in personal security with such grim foreboding. As an interesting side note, the story's hero is a very handy fighter who has little trouble defeating school bullies. However, this does not prove to his betterment when his soft skills are often left wanting. There is even an incident where a child is knocked unconscious during a fight and the little puppet is wrongfully accused of the crime. We might find a moral regarding post-instant knowledge of the law if we looked very hard at this particular episode. However, I wish to draw your attention to two story arcs in the novel that are especially relevant to our theme of situational awareness and the dangers of bad company. The first story arc about bad company picks up when Pinocchio, recently gifted five gold coins, meets two memorable antagonists, the fox and the cat. Few archetypes in classic children's literature embody the traits of the villainous and opportunistic predator as well as these two irredeemable rogues. Within a few lines of their introduction, we learn what the gullible puppet does not see, that they are frauds and they are ruthless. The fox pretends to be lame and the cat feigns being blind. Both of these lies are exposed quickly, but the hero doesn't seem to notice or care. In addition to describing some physical humour for the reader, Collodi appears to want to put over the message that these two figures possess none of the disciplined traits of the criminal mastermind. They're exemplifications of raw animal cunning and opportunism. Regular listeners of this show might recall some of the gruesome twosomes of true crime I've used to illustrate self-protection discussions. The fox and the cat are definitely close in spirit to Burke and Hare in their unsophisticated predatory nature. Their ruthlessness is exhibited when the cat quickly dispatches and eats a blackbird that tries to warn Pinocchio of the con that's being played on him. At face value, this is somewhat of a repetition of Pinocchio's murderous actions in an earlier chapter when he kills the centenarian talking cricket that tries to warn him about his early misbehaviour and predicts the marionette's fate to become a ridiculed donkey. In the true allegorical fashion of fairy tale magical realism, this transformation literally happens. However... Pinocchio's sudden act of violence against the cricket is a result of an outburst of childish rage, and it is implied he feels some remorse, however small. The cat shows no pity whatsoever. Like our amoral real-life gangsters of Prohibition-era USA, the disposing of the good-natured bird is a cold act to remove obstacles that would otherwise hinder criminal profit. The fox and the cat then use several of the deceptive tactics described in my previous podcast, and also in Gavin de Becker's The Gift of Fear. By using hot reading intelligence on his father, the fox first acquaints himself with Pinocchio. It's a type of forced teaming ruse designed to get the marionette to drop his guard on the pretense that the fox is a long-time friend of the family. It is done courteously. There's a charm and niceness warning signal used by many well-known human predators, 
and this allows the fox the cover of being good intentioned. Once they understand that Pinocchio intends to trade up his gold coins to buy his father a wonderful coat and then to buy an ABC book to study, they zero in on the weaker motivation. They convince him that study is damaging and they have a much better way to increase his fortune. He attempts one act of resistance and determines to head for home, feeling sorry for his father, but the two easily persuade him and create a fanciful story whereby burying the coins in a special field of miracles will result in the overnight growth of a money tree. This allows them to take the puppet, much like Little Red Riding Hood, off the symbolic and literal path of righteousness and off to far darker domains. After leaving him with a bill for their shared lodgings and an enormous feast they've enjoyed at the infamous Inn of the Red Lobster, the fox and cat leave a message for Pinocchio to meet them at the Field of Miracles. Claudi strongly implies that the innkeeper of this establishment is familiar with the setup and an accomplice in the crime. Not only does the innkeeper give a wink to the fox regarding waking them two hours ahead of Pinocchio to set up their ambush, but he also ably covers for them. He takes the gold coin off Pinocchio as if the fox and the cat were granting the marionette an honour. A self-protection takeaway here is that fellow criminals will often cooperate in the exploitation of a victim. We all should be wary of unfamiliar environments where the untrustworthy are familiar guests. Like-minded criminals of the same culture often fall into mutually beneficial partnerships when they can spot an easy target. A type of cultural grooming might take place. In some instances, it might be fleeting. Many establishment owners have been known to turn a blind eye to the scamming of new patrons, knowing they will get a healthy percentage of the ill-gotten takings. Crimes often have peripheral stakeholders. If we go back to my Last Night of the Ghouls podcast, Birkenhead did all the murdering, but other family members and friends also contributed as procurers or lookouts. Then there are the more long-term scams, where the naive, the gullible, the impressionable and the vulnerable are exploited to be tools for a nefarious subculture. Charles Dickens portrays it well with Fagin's den of pickpockets in Oliver Twist. Fagin's lead child pickpocket, the artful dodger, first procures Oliver, the virtuous titular hero of this novel, and is warmly welcomed into the squalid criminal enterprise that he will soon battle to escape. As a father, I find the Rochdale child sex abuse ring to be a particularly disturbing yet relevant recent example of the danger young people can easily fall into when they are with the wrong company. In this infamous case, families and members of a certain culture worked a system of pimping and raping teenage girls that had been in existence from at least 2003 into 2012. The victims were first lured into one of two takeaway restaurants with presence of alcohol, drugs and food. The entire operation ended up stretching out across Rochdale, Oldham, Nelson, Bradford and Leeds, all supported by a community of silence. Amongst the teenage victims of this paedophile ring was a 15-year-old girl who was reminiscent of Dickens' Dodger character. Under the dominating influence of her adult so-called boyfriend, she became a procurer of other victims and was given the nickname the Honey Monster. This type of victim-predator provides us with a complexity in life when we try to shuffle people into the good side and the bad side. It also leads us onto the second relevant story arc of the many adventures of Pinocchio. By this stage in the story, Pinocchio has been through several hard life lessons since he first left for the Field of Miracles. His arc with the fox and the cat was originally intended to end prematurely when the two villains ambush him disguised as the bandits. After first exhibiting signs of denial and delusion, when he dismisses the advice given by the ghost of the cricket in a manner self-protection teachers encounter on too many occasions, 
He demonstrates the inferiority of hard skills self-defence to soft skills personal security. Despite biting the cat's paw off and running well over an hour in a vain effort to gain access to the locked cottage of the Blue Fairy, he is hung from an oak tree for three hours when he refuses to release his coins from his mouth. Kalodi first ended his tale at this point, a harsh lesson for children who don't heed good advice. For self-protection teachers, it also exposes the folly of fighting for material goods when one's life is on the line. However, like Conan Doyle, Kalodi was convinced to bring back his most famous creation and all of the most famous adventures happened from this point onwards. Demonstrating that he hasn't learned his lesson yet, despite being rescued, scolded and advised by the Blue Fairy, who goes from being a pale living corpse at the window of a locked cottage where all the occupants are dead into a surrogate mother figure, Pinocchio is successfully swindled by the fox and cat using the same trick and then thrown into prison for his stupidity. There are other examples in the story that also seem to reinforce the importance of heart and mind over toughness, but we're straying from our theme of situational awareness in the wrong crowd. We meet the procurer in Pinocchio's story at the beginning of the Toyland arc. After seemingly learning from his follies and having paid his punishments, Pinocchio is well behaved for a period of time and the Blue Fairy promises to grant him the wish of becoming a real boy the next day. He is to have a party and is told to invite his friends, but not before harsh words of advice are given to him. Readers of the story were already prepared for the calamity that was set to follow with the previous chapter's cliffhanger and this just helps ramp up some of the tension. One of his friends is called Romeo, but goes by the nickname of Lampwick. Cloddy loved to nickname his characters, and is the laziest boy in school as well as the biggest mischief maker. Naturally, he's Pinocchio's idol. Again, we see shades of Schwimmer and the lure of the rogue. Lampwick convinces Pinocchio to join him in Toyland instead of attending the party tomorrow. This country of vice allows children to indulge their every whim without school or responsibility. Despite early warnings from a talking donkey that pulls the carriage that takes the many wayward children to Toyland that Pinocchio will end up like him, our hero proceeds to what is almost his undoing. At face value, Kalodi presents a pretty obvious moral story for this arc. Lazy boys like Lambwick and Pinocchio are destined to become objects of ridicule and abuse. More so, they're easy prey for manipulative adults who can bribe them with temporary access to a taboo world. The cricket's early prediction in Chapter 12 comes to full fruition in this sense. Lambwick, who is presented as the worst of the two, gets the full punishment, dying as a donkey. The Duke's ex Mechina once again saves Pinocchio when he becomes a lame donkey and almost gets skinned by a drum maker. He becomes a marionette again and has to go on one last perilous and redemptive adventure which reunites him with his father in Joseph Campbell's literal belly of the whale, or dogfish who really are being literal in our 19th century Italian translations. However, the devices Claudia uses in the Toyland arc, where children are lured into a self-indulgent utopia that turns them into donkeys, prompts thoughts about the dangers and dynamics of keeping bad company. The lampwicks of this world might represent layabout hedonists that do not serve society but just drag the naive into lives of dangerous irresponsibility, but they might also be pitied. They are victims too. I see the procurer girl labelled the honey monster in the Rochdale child sex abuse ring as a type of lampwick or even a far darker version of the artful dodger. To be straight, I'm not going to make the unfounded assumption that she and all the young teenage girls that she recruited for grooming and abuse had disreputable qualities. There were teenagers who were doing what bored teenagers do testing their expanding boundaries and having fun in a group. We know that plenty of abused people are often used to help facilitate more abuse on others. Viktor Frankl recorded during his experience as a prisoner of the Nazi death camps how prisoners destined to die would be put in petty positions of authority where they would often abuse their fellow inmates. 
it is a sad aspect to the human condition and might be tied up with an immediate need to survive. The Procurer girl, who was not even 16, would have had support in her duties to get in new recruits by others who were also being abused. Peer pressure and cult-like authority from adults can be very hard for a child to resist. In Claudie's novel, Pinocchio demonstrates how far he's come in his resolutions by resisting Lampwick's early arguments to join him. Even when the wagon arrives and is full to bursting point with little boys all looking forward to a life of play without education, he tries hard to refuse the temptation. However, when all those in the wagon support Lampwick, Pinocchio wavers and eventually decides to go. Even the words and the actions of the abused donkey he rides don't persuade him to turn back. This will be the last time he surrenders to temptation and does not heed good advice. The Rochdale children had no idea that the seemingly kind-hearted takeaway restaurant owner friends and family of the Honey Monster's boyfriend were loan-sharking them with free food. When the food was accompanied by more illicit substances, a new line was crossed and the trap tightened. Alcohol and drugs are a time-tested way to create divides between predators and the parents of their victims, as exemplified by criminals like Charles Smith and Charles Manson. Not only is there the obvious appeal of doing something forbidden and out of bounds to the young victims when they are at home, but it also helps maintain the secrecy of the new relationship. These substances have a further use in the way they dull the sense of the users, breaking down their inhibitions, and if needed, incapacitate them. When the rapes began and the victims were pimped out to strangers, the bewildered teenagers would have been pained to realise when the lines had been blurred in their relationship with the gang. This is how the criminal takes control by confusion and by manipulation, both of which stem from the false friendship bonds that have been forged via the loan sharking, charm and niceness tactics. As I mentioned earlier, Anselmi's signature assassination setup, the handshake hit in Prohibition era Chicago, is just one variation on how a friendly gesture can be used to disarm a target. I also see it as symbolic of the way bad company operates, be they the false friend puppet masters or the hapless manipulated procurers. People like Reinhard Schwimmer buy into the romance of criminal subcultures. Similarly, actors like George Raft had brief periods of being admired because of his friendship with the likes of Majolansky and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. However, Siegel's assassination by his own friends, the culture of gambling and eventually Raft's decision to front mob-run legitimate businesses in the UK ruined both his career and his finances in general. Siegel had once prophetically declared, We only kill our own. Gang member Harry Hill's immortal words via his biopic Goodfellas sums up the disloyalty of his criminal life and the expendability of those who work for the mob. Quote, If you're part of a crew, nobody ever tells you that they're going to kill you. It doesn't happen that way. There weren't any arguments or curses like in the movies, so your murderers come with smiles. They come as your friends, the people who have cared for you all your life, and they always seem to come at a time when you're at your weakest and most in need of their help. End quote. Our news is full of recent tragic stories about people who met their deaths or ended up with their lives severely damaged simply because they fell in with the wrong crowd. A quick search of the internet will demonstrate this sad fact. Our social nature allows us to be susceptible to this type of exploitation. You don't have to be a gangster groupie or a bored teenager to find yourself in a dangerous part of society that is difficult to leave or, like Schwimmer, one you don't think will consume you. I have known very mentally and physically strong people end up in extremely dangerous relationships with parasitic and exploitative so-called friends. Some get turned into artful dodgers and honey monsters, committing their own crimes to satisfy their abusers or somehow justify their role. 
I speak from experience when I say that there are many disreputable and cult-like martial arts figures that are adept at grooming individuals into a dangerous world of corruption. When I was first recruited as an instructor in a club, I found myself within a culture of being manipulated first by a recruiting instructor and then, when that recruiting instructor was no longer towing the line of the chief instructor, groomed to replace that same individual. This behaviour is not confined to any small or select area of society. Bad company is perhaps the most insidious way situational awareness can be compromised. We not only have to watch it in our own communities and our circles of friends, as well as those who associate with our loved ones, we also have to watch it in ourselves. Any one of us can be potential targets for the manipulation of those we erroneously trust. It is, as Carlo Collodi observed in 19th century Tuscany, a consistent part of the human condition, as are all the dangers we work to defeat in our self-protection education. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There are certain links to other podcast episodes I advise, such as the Way of the Wolf trilogy and the first part of The Aftermath, a very early podcast I did back in 2018. This March, my Vagabond Warriors workshops return and we're holding our first one of 2020 at the Oxfordshire School of Martial Arts Dojo in Kidlington, Oxfordshire. This is an excellent training space and I'm grateful to Rob King for allowing us to use their home premises. Please contact me directly via the Club Chimera website's email or via my social media outlets. The Oxford School of Martial Arts are a superb academy of schools and I've been honoured to teach two workshops and one seminar for them care of the excellent instructor Mary Stevens, who I'm collaborating with on a new project for child self-protection that we're hoping to be a graded course made available as a bolt-on for different martial arts schools. Please watch this space for that one. Rob King, the head teacher of OSMA, is also set to do a 10,000 press-up challenge to raise money for Fair Fight, a critically acclaimed charity which supports vulnerable young women in developing countries. They use martial arts to build physical and mental resilience, confidence and happiness. In India, their mission is to expand the potential of girls aged from 6 to 18 who are recovering from experiences in child prostitution, drug trafficking and extreme poverty. Mary's been out to India several times and the last time she even implemented the self-protection we began work on last year. Check out Rob's fundraiser when it appears through the OSMA, that's the Oxford School of Martial Arts page and website. My friend Vijay Pathak has kindly booked me for an open seminar on the 7th of June this year at the Ridgeway Sport Academy Sports Centre in Hertfordshire. I met Vijay at a seminar I taught for Lee Mullen's Kiru Practical Karate last year. Like his colleagues at that seminar, Vijay is a progressive traditional martial artist with a constant drive to deliver effective self-protection and practical combat arts. He will be booking me for a total of five hours at the Ridgeway Sport Academy. This will consist of a two-hour children's self-protection workshop based on my When Parents Aren't Around and a three-hour martial arts cross-training Vagabond Warriors workshop for 14 years and up. Please contact Vijay directly for this one via his Forest Schools of Karate. It's always a great day with these guys, lots of training and lots of fun. As always, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Google and YouTube. Please like and subscribe to these places. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so via iTunes, Stitcher, TunedIn and most other popular podcast platforms. Please write a five-star review if you can, wherever you find this show or Club Chimera in general. It helps me tremendously with everything. 
I have several planned shows coming up soon, including a two-part crossover event with Lee Sims, but I cannot say what the next one will be on here due to juggling my other projects. Also, by popular demand, there will be another Marshall Movie Massacre. There are loads of subjects I want to cover, but I'm still open to ideas and questions regarding content on these shows, so please get in touch or contribute on our pages. Thanks for listening. 